Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Welcome back. What an amazing truth to just think about who our God is, that He calls Himself the I Am, that He can become and He is whatever we need. And the the fact that he's the way maker, the fact that he is our provider, that he's our protector, he is our shield, he's our fortress, he's our hope, he's our refuge, he is God, he's the Lord, and he's uh, just so good and he's so worthy, and it's such a privilege to belong to him, to be tucked into the cross, to belong to his son, and to be covered in his blood. What an amazing thing, and, and how that unites us and makes us one. It's just absolutely incredible. What an amazing God we serve. Welcome back. Uh, We're here again. This is the live portion of our service tonight. I I just want to thank you guys for joining us tonight. I just want to give a special shout out um, to to Brad and Jen and Caleb, uh, just to hear your voices over, you know, I'm not in the sound booth, I'm not watching it live, but just to stand here in the front row and to listen to you guys sing. Uh, over us and, and to hear your voices. It's just amazing. I miss our uh, pre-service prayer meetings, but thank you guys so much. Also, I know, Andrew, you were playing on that, and Damon's here, but thank all of you guys for, for, for participating and for helping in every way that you do. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, I also want to thank all of you that are, are leaving feedback and um, just giving some indication that you're tuning in. It's just nice to see your face and connect and to hear your, your comments. It's, it is a blessing. It's it just a reminder. Not that we've forgotten those of you that don't leave comments or aren't listening in a way that you can or listening later, but, uh, but just appreciate that. Special shout out to our official online usher, Jesse Abel, all of you <laughs> that are there, you know what I'm talking about. Um, if you need a Bible, Jesse will bring it to you. If you have unruly children, Jesse will take care of them. No, just obviously just kidding. But uh, it is just a joy to have some platform where we can connect and interact. In some ways, we do that more than we would here. You know, so uh, it is a blessing. So anyways, welcome back. I am looking forward to the time when I have 17 minutes of announcements to give to you. It hasn't been that way. But there's a few things tonight that I just want to make you aware of and point out. Uh, Number one is that Pastor Bobby will be starting a new study, not this Sunday, but next study Sunday in the book of James, Uh, a faith that is proven is the subtitle of that. Uh, So be sure to tune in, be praying for him uh, and keep that in prayer as that will go out. We want you to participate with us in the fruit of that. Also, um, our youth groups, the junior high youth group, um, the, the senior high youth group and the college and career youth group, they are meeting uh, via Zoom. And so if you haven't yet been a part of that or you want your kids to be involved in that or at least have the opportunity, all you have to do is email the church office at office at ccohv.org and request the link for the specific group that you want to be a part of. And then you can sign on to that link on your device at the time that the the group is meeting and you can live stream participate. So it's face to face. It's great. It's awesome thing. Um, That's an opportunity that's there for you. And then also uh, next Thursday night, April 30th, we are going to continue with our prayer for the nation. And so that will also be a Zoom Uh, meeting. We were doing it a half hour because that's all that Zoom was allowing, but I guess Zoom has lifted that time restriction during this time of isolation. So we're going to meet for an hour from 7 to 8 next Thursday evening. If you want to participate, 
go on the church website and the link is there posted uh, in, in the um, updates right on the front screen. And so you can join in with us. I encourage you to do it. You'll probably be reminded Sunday, again next Wednesday. But what an important time to be praying for our nation. There's so much to pray about. And so we ask you to join with us uh, in that. So that's it. Just wanted to lay that stuff before you guys. We're going to continue in our study of Matthew's gospel tonight. And I would just ask you at this time uh, that you would just pray with me that we prepare our hearts in the right way. And, um, and, and we're going to be in chapters 21, 22, and 23, and just a few verses in 24. Don't worry. It's under control. But let's pray. Father, we just come to you tonight, and we want to um, thank you for who you are. We want to thank you, Lord, that you're sovereign. Uh, thank you, Lord, that you knew all of what would come upon our world every day, and you told us emphatically to not let our hearts to be troubled. And you commanded us, Lord, you said, be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God and that your peace would keep us. So Lord, we just tonight, we just cast everything that we are, everything that our lives consist of, we lay it down before you right now. Every fear, every worry, every need, every question mark, we lay it before you, Lord. And we ask that even now that your peace would flood into our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would be with us and upon us, and that you'd make us aware of your presence. And we lift up this time in your word, Lord. We ask that you would speak to us, that you would make your voice to be heard through the text that never dies. So would you please meet with us now in this time? Would you anoint our hearts? Would you anoint your truth, the teaching of your word? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to chapter 21 of Matthew's gospel, we really kind of turn a corner. And if you, in your mind, want to subdivide Matthew for the sake of really just kind of seeing how it all goes together... The beginning portion is just the introduction of Jesus, his genealogy, his baptism, his presentation, and that's the first section. From there, it becomes all about the kingdom, the proclamation of the kingdom. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And all of the text from chapter 4 all the way up through chapter 20, the end, is really different elements of that kingdom being revealed. And that has been the theme of our studies as we've gone through Matthew. And, and by just quick way of reminder and review, we saw the creed of the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. We saw the king of the kingdom in Jesus' authority being demonstrated in all of its various ways. We saw the culture of the kingdom. We've seen the currents of the kingdom. When we heard the parables of Jesus, as he described to us how things work in a spiritually, almost scientific way in the kingdom of God. We saw the coming of the kingdom when Jesus was transfigured and he gave us a picture of the glory that would be revealed in the kingdom that's coming. We saw the honor of the kingdom, the attributes that are honorable in God's kingdom. So attributes of humility and unity and forgiveness. And then last time we were together, we talked about kingdom capital. And that is that in the economy of God's kingdom, all of it belongs to him. And everything that we receive, we receive by grace because of God's favor. And so all of the kingdom has been presented up until this time as we turn into chapter 21. But at this time now, Jesus is going to be officially going into Jerusalem for the final time 
for the final week of his life on earth and his earthly ministry for the sake of being presented to Jerusalem as the king in fulfillment of prophecy, but ultimately then to lay down his life to go to the cross to spend three days in the grave, and then to rise again. And so as we turn into 21, now the, 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 the corner turns and we begin to see Jesus moving towards the cross. Now, Jesus has been talking so much about the kingdom. And the disciples that have been traveling with Jesus have been learning so much of this kingdom. And there's great anticipation in their hearts. They, they've heard it. They've seen it. They're with Jesus and there's great expectation. They're very excited about what's to come. But at the same time, there's this, um, this huge elephant kind of in the room with them. And that is that Jesus keeps talking about this cross. Jesus has been talking about how when they get to Jerusalem, it isn't going to be a coronation, but rather a crucifixion. Jesus is going to be betrayed and then delivered to the high priests and the Herodians to be crucified. And the disciples have kind of like blanked that out. It's kind of like the check engine light is on in your car, but you just put a sticker over it and you can't see it. And so they've kind of ignored it. They've misunderstood it. They don't get it. And so they're going into Jerusalem and they're still expecting that Jesus is going to come in there like David. He's going to wipe out all of the other things and that they're all just going to be on these thrones. That's what they're anticipating and yet that's not exactly what's going to happen. And so the big question mark for the disciples is, yes, Jesus, you've told us so much about the kingdom, but when is this kingdom actually going to be established? And that's really the title of tonight's message is kingdom when, kingdom when, <laughs> you know, when is all of this actually going to go down in the whole thing? They've traded in their whole lives for this cause and now Jesus brings them to Jerusalem. It's his official presentation as the king of the kingdom. So read with me. We're just going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 21 as Jesus comes into Jerusalem here. It says here, beginning in verse 1, it says that when they drew near unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over across from you, and straightway you shall find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man says anything unto you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and straightway he will send them. And all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Now he quotes Zechariah in verse 5, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king comes unto you, meek and sitting upon a donkey, and a colt of the fowl of a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And so this is a segment that we call 
the triumphal entry. It's the time when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, officially being presented to them as their king or as their Messiah. Now, it's an amazing scene as we picture it in our minds or as maybe we've seen it depicted in uh, screenplay. But really, it's kind of anticlimactic if you consider the weight of what it is and what it represents versus the actual scene that's taking place right there. I mean, think about it for just a minute. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe, the Messiah King that's been anticipated for thousands of years now is finally being presented. And you would expect that he'd be riding a Clydesdale and that he'd be clothed in purple robes and that it would be like the majesty of Solomon on steroids, you know, but it's not, it's not like that at all. It says that he's riding on a donkey. I mean, what majesty, what royalty rides in on a donkey? This is completely backwards, you know, and then it says that they they really, they didn't have like a red carpet to roll out in front of them. There wasn't a row of people with trumpets, you know, to praise in that way. So they, they had clothes. So people start taking off their jackets I mean, these are the common folks. They start taking off their outer clothing and they just throw that on the ground. And so you have Jesus probably wearing sandals and plain robe clothes. He's riding a donkey. The donkey's walking on clothes. And you have people that aren't a part of the regular establishment crying in fulfillment of Psalm 118, verse 26, blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord. And it's so anticlimactic that the people that are watching don't even know who Jesus is. They have to ask at the end of the passage and say, who's this? And they don't even know. And I love this about Jesus is that he does everything backwards. It's a perfect fulfillment of the prophecy. And yet it's far from what we would expect it to look like when he would come in this way. And I wonder what the disciples were thinking as they kind of watched all of this happen. Here, this is supposed to be the presentation of the king. This is what they've been giving their lives for for three years. And it seems like, really? I mean, I'm not sure. Like, Jesus seems maybe a little bit more like the tiger king than the king of kings. You know, it just is, it doesn't seem to fit. It doesn't seem to jive. You know, as I I think about this, I can't help but think about Judas. Because we know that Judas the betrayer is very soon going to turn his back on Jesus. He's going to betray him. He's the one that Jesus has been foretelling. And we know that nobody who, who falls away from the Lord does it in a moment. You know, this is something that has been working in his heart for a while now. You know, and so Judas has, has been a part of the 12 apostles. He holds a very prominent place. He's the treasurer. But he's been detached for a long time. He's maybe never really attached. And so he's kind of been an outsider looking in. And, and I wonder what this scene effect, the effect it had on him as he's kind of beginning to make a decision that he's not a part of all this. He doesn't believe in it. And he's starting to think that he has given himself really for a scam, you know, on things. And it kind of scares me to think about, you know, to just consider Judas for a minute. Judas preaches because... Judas was there, and he was very close to Jesus. And, and it scares me to think that you can be very close to Jesus. You can be seeing the work that he's doing. It can be happening right in front of your eyes, and yet somehow you can be detached from it and not really in it and not even seeing it even though it's happening right in front of your eyes. And that scares me a little bit to think uh, about Jesus, or I mean Judas, 
in, in this thing. And he's secretly frustrated in this because he, he's seeing what's going on here, but it's not what he expected in his heart. You know, and, and sometimes we can be frustrated at the way Jesus or God choose to do things because it doesn't make sense to us. We get a picture in our mind of how things are supposed to go or how his word is supposed to be fulfilled. And, and when it doesn't happen that way, we get frustrated. Now, Judas, I think, was probably the most relatable of the 12. He was the pragmatist. He was the practical one. He was the money guy, the guy that lined up the, you know, the, 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 the factors and wanted everything to work out in a certain way. And this was what he thought. This is what you know, Judas wanted. That was his personality. He was the realist. He was level-headed. You know? And these are the things, really, that we celebrate in this world. We want line A plus line B to equal line C, and we want to see it. We want to understand it. We want to um, be able to project and, and, and calculate and analyze and have things turn out at least partially the way that we think. And, and sometimes with God, it doesn't happen that way. Because he is a whole lot bigger than we are. And he's in control of things on a much different level and deeper level than we are. And so we can't always see how he's doing everything that he's doing. There's an interesting thing that happens in life, and that is this. Is that the more complex something is, the less easy it is to understand. Or to say it this way, the more complex something is, the more untrue true things can seem. You know, and I just think about, for, for a minute, you know, just think about the verse that we all love. It's Romans eight twenty eight. You know, it, it says that all things work together for the good to those that love God and that are called according to his purpose. We all know that or have heard it, and we love that because of the amazing value that that promise carries with it. He works all things together for the good. But think about that for just a moment, because, yes, that's true, but it's not simple because when he says all things, he's not talking about just a couple of the things that pertain to us. He's talking about all things that pertain to everyone, everywhere, in everything. See, for me, all things working together for good means that my bank account and my health are stable. If those things are good, and my family too. I know you're watching. I love you guys, you know. But, but you get the idea. For me, I'm simple. And so for me, all things is very few things. But you add the complexity of all things, and that's what God is dealing with. Now there's so many more factors involved in what's working together for good, and that makes room for some of those things to maybe appear not good right now. Because when you factor in all things, it's not just the things that I think are important, but it's everything. So God sees my whole life. He sees my situation that I'm in right now. He sees my character and what needs to change in my character. He sees my personality. He sees everything that's going on in my past, present, and future and where I'm going. Not only that, but he sees all the people that I'm linked to, my family members, my friends, my church friends, the people I work with and live alongside. He sees the situation of what's going on in the world and how all of those other things fit into that. And he's working all of that together for the good at the same time. And that's why sometimes what is good, according to God, doesn't look good right now. 
And sometimes it doesn't feel good right now because certain elements of what he's doing in working it all to the good are uncomfortable for the time being. And if I don't understand that, then what is true can appear untrue and I stop trusting God with things that I can't see and can't control and I get frustrated like Judas. The more complex things are, the less control we have. And without trust in God, we are left with frustration and impatience and eventually apostasy. And that's what happened with Judas. Judas sees a donkey. He sees an anticlimactic entry. He sees these people throwing their clothes in the way. And something inside of him says, no, I, I, I made a bad decision. I wish I didn't follow this king. I'm going to get something out of this, and I'm packing sand. I'm getting out of here. It's a scary thing to think about. But I wonder right now, if there isn't maybe some of you that are listening to my voice But if you're honest, you would say that there's a little bit of Judas mentality in you. You know, at some point, maybe in your Christian walk, there was something that didn't happen the way you thought, or things aren't happening right now the way that you thought, and you're still in it. You're still here. You're still with your family. Nobody else knows it, but somewhere in your heart or in your mind, you've checked out a little bit. You've put Jesus on trial. You've kind of detached and are detaching in such a way, and It it isn't the same as it once was. There's just a lack of trust. There's something that's going on inside of you that's not good, and you're secretly frustrated. I think that from time to time, all of the 12 apostles live inside my head. I think that sometimes I can relate very closely to, to Peter, who's the one who would die for Jesus and wants to be right there and the the zealot right on the front lines. Sometimes I'm like James and John that I just want to do everything I can and be everything I can for him. Sometimes I feel like Thomas that I'm there, but there's, you know, a little bit of doubt. Sometimes I feel like the other, what is that, eight left or nine left, you know, that they're kind of maybe more in the background. Lord, just, I want to serve you, but let me serve in the background. But sadly and truly, you know, sometimes... If I'm not careful, there can be the voice of Judas in my head too, saying, really, Lord, really? Like, this is how this is going to play out? You know, I, I, want, I don't want to be like that. You know, I have that mentality. Yeah, I know, Lord, it's coming, whatever it is. <laughs> but when? When's it coming? Lord, you promised a kingdom. You promised, a, you promised, a, you promised, but, but when? But when? But when? And that really is the great stumbling block, isn't it? So often, it's the when factor. Now, I want you to understand something in the context of what's going on in the ministry of Jesus right now, is that we, all of us that have a Bible, we have more understanding than those 12 apostles and that multitude of disciples had in that day, because they didn't fully understand how God was going to come, die, leave, and then come again. That wasn't clear to them. They didn't understand that. We do understand that, but they didn't get it. They didn't understand yet that Jesus' kingdom was not of this world. They were expecting the days of David, the days of Solomon. They were expecting earthly glory. They didn't understand that that wasn't the way that it had to happen. But the next portion of this gospel, chapters 21, 22, and 23, there's a narrative, which is the preparation for the cross, But there's also a theme. And the theme of it is the second coming and the materializing of the kingdom. Because 
all of what happens, and, and if you've tuned me out because I'm just giving too many words tonight, tune me back in because this is important. Listen, all of what happens in chapters 21, 22, and 23 is a setup in part, not all, but in part, for a question that the disciples are going to ask Jesus in chapter 24, verse 3. And here's the question they're going to ask. They're going to ask, what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And that's huge, because what that means is that something happened between the seven-day span before it, where before it, They were still thinking, this is going to be an earthly kingdom that we're setting up right now. And after it, now they understand. When when are you going to come back and what is the end of the age? So in this seven-day period of time, the light turns on for most of these 12, and they realize that Jesus' kingdom is something that is yet to come. They still thought it was now. By 24, they see that it's something that's yet to come. Now, what happens during those six or seven days that causes that switch, wherein they now understand it? Now, follow me, because here's where we fly over all of the content of these chapters in just a few moments. Right after the triumphal entry that we read about at the beginning of chapter 21, Jesus goes into the temple and he purifies it for the second time, meaning he turns over the tables of the money changers. He drives out the merchandisers that are selling sheep and dove and changing, exchanging money. And he says again that my father's house is to be a house of prayer. Now, this is the second time Jesus did this. He did this at the beginning of his ministry, John chapter 2, and he does it here at the end of his ministry in Matthew chapter 21. From there... Jesus goes out of the temple compound and it says that he was hungry and he came to a fig tree seeking figs, but there were no figs on it, only leaves. And so he curses the fig tree and he says, no man eat fruit from you again forever. And then they watch the disciples while the tree begins to wither and shrivel up right in front of their eyes. And and, and they say, Jesus, that's amazing. Like, and Jesus talks about, you know, faith. But, but what was the significance of that? The fig tree was a sign or a symbol of the nation of Israel. And Jesus coming to that tree was a symbol of Jesus coming into Israel to receive the fruit of the kingdom that had been sown for all of these years. And finding no fruit, but only leaves the appearance of it, He curses it and says, you're not going to bear any more fruit now. That's the significance of what was taking place there. Now, Jesus leaves from that scene and he goes into a sequence of examinations. You could call it final exams for Jesus. It's exam week for Jesus. He is questioned by four groups of people. First, the chief priests and the scribes. Then, the Herodians. Then, the Sadducees. And then the Pharisees. These are all groups that are antagonistic toward Jesus. And they ask questions of him, trying to trap him in his words. And also trying to prove the substance of what they're hearing about. Or what they've heard or seen over the course of his ministry. Now I find it amazing to consider that way back when Moses instituted the Passover. Of which Jesus is a picture. Moses 
God told Moses that when they would choose a lamb, they were to keep that lamb in their house for four days and they were to inspect it to make sure that it was perfect. Well, Jesus is being examined and inspected during these days that he's in Jerusalem by every group that could try to find fault with him. And they're not able to in any way. He absolutely is the perfect and pure Lamb of God. Now, those examination questions that were asked of Jesus by these people, these groups of people, Jesus' response to them was three parables. He responded with three parables. One is the parable of the two sons. It's found later in Matthew chapter 21, where Jesus said a man had two sons, and he told them both, go work in the vineyard. And one of them said, I'll go, but he never went. The other one said, eh, I ain't going. But then he thought, now dad said, I better go. And he went. And Jesus said, which of those two did the will of their father? And they answered Jesus and they said, well, the one who did the work. And Jesus said, exactly. Then he applied it by saying that the harlots and the publicans go into the kingdom before you. In other words, Jesus was saying, you guys have the appearance but you don't have the fruit. And those that have the fruit, they will absolutely enter in. You will not. Significant parable. The second parable followed it immediately. It's at the end of chapter 21, and it was the parable of the vineyard. And that parable of the vineyard is that he says that the Lord of a vineyard let out or rented out his vineyard to his servants, and then he went away in a far journey. Now That's a clue for the disciples that are listening. The Lord went away and he rented out the field to those that were still behind. But those that were initially given the field, in the parable, it's the Jewish nation, they fell in love with the land, but they hated the Lord. And so they slew the prophets and ultimately conspired to kill his son, and then they wanted to keep the field for themselves. Well, in the parable, the Lord of the vineyard returns. He takes the vineyard from those initial keepers of it, stewards of it, and he gives it to those that will bring forth fruit unto the Lord of the vineyard, a picture of the church that would be born in the interim while Jesus is then away. The third parable is in chapter 22, and that is the parable of the wedding feast. It's one of my favorite parables that Jesus told in the entirety of the Bible. He says that the father prepared a wedding for the son, and he sent out the invitations and then prepared the wedding, and he did it. He took the time, he set the table, he prepared all things, and then the father sent a servant to tell the guests, all things are now ready. You can come to the banquet, come to the wedding. But when the servants went out, those that were invited began to give excuses. They began to say, oh, I just bought a field. I just took a wife. I'm too busy. I can't make the time right now. Thanks, but no thanks. So the servants bring word back to the father. The father gets a little bit upset over the response of these invited guests. And he tells the servants, go out again. But this time, you invite whoever you run into. Go to the highways, the byways, invite the bums, everybody who you see, just invite them because my house is going to be full. And then Jesus adds this on to the end. He says, there was, however, some at the wedding that weren't clothed properly. They weren't wearing wedding attire. 
And, and so the, the master of the wedding came to them and said, why are you dressed this way? And he said to the servants, bind them hand and foot and cast them out. They don't belong here, even though they were brought in. And that's just hang on to that. We're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. But that was the third parable that Jesus taught. Now, the first group, just by interpretation, was the unwilling nation of Israel that rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And the highways and the byways group, the whosoevers, that represents the church and the Gentile nations that were invited to the wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb, to be married to Jesus. Now, Jesus also, in those chapters, talked about resurrection, which was important for the disciples' understanding to realize that there can be death and resurrection. And he also talked about the mystery of God's ways. Jesus questioned the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he said, listen, how is it that the Messiah can both be the son of David and the Lord of David? Go figure it out. And and they couldn't answer him. They didn't understand it. And Jesus was essentially saying, like, look, you guys don't know as much as you think you know. You don't have it all figured out. And so Jesus gives them all of this. Then chapter 23 comes. And if you're looking at your Bible right now, you'll see that chapter 23 is a red chapter. Chapter 23 is like reality TV. Chapter 23, if it was a YouTube video, would have 27 gazillion hits and would be viral. Because Jesus transforms from lamb to lion, and he begins to say some of the most condemning, judgment-bearing, heavy-handed things to the scribes and the Pharisees that anyone has ever said to a professional person anywhere. I would have loved to been there, just not to been part of who's hearing the words of Jesus, but just to watch that whole instance as Jesus just nailed them on every point. He called them hypocrites. He called them blind. He called them, uh, you know, woeful thieves. I mean, he just went off on the Pharisees there in that day. And then he says to them at the end, at the end of chapter 23, he said, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. The same words that the group cried out back in chapter 21 at the triumphal entry. They said it, meaning it. Jesus said, someday you're going to say that when I come again. Now, the disciples are hearing all of this. They're hearing about leaving and coming, leaving and coming, resurrection, not understanding everything. Jesus saying, you will say when I come again, these whole things. Well, the disciples take all this in. And in the beginning of chapter 24, the disciples take Jesus and they bring Jesus outside. And, and it's funny because it's almost as though they're, they're going to like try to talk Jesus off the ledge a little bit. Like they're going to instruct Jesus somewhat there. And in the beginning of chapter 24, it says that they came out and they departed from the temple. And it says the disciples came to him and they said unto him, you know, uh, to show him, it says the, the buildings of the temple. And it says that Jesus said unto them, do you not see all of these things? He said, for truly I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, at this point, the disciples get it. They understand the kingdom is not now. The kingdom is later. Jesus will return. He will come the second time. It took a week for them to make the switch, to understand it. But now they get it. 
And thus they ask the question, Matthew 24, verse 3, and they say, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You know, so, so important, this whole thing. They understand that it's not happening in the time frame that we thought. Now, the question that they asked Jesus, that is the question that we have, isn't it? You know, I want to know when. Lord, when are you going to come back? What is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What is it that we should expect or that we should look for? That is the question. The answer is given in chapters 24 and 25, which we are going to begin to study next week in our study as we go through and look at Jesus' answer to that question. But for the remainder of our time this week, I want to prepare you for what we're going to hear next week and maybe the weeks after that as we go through those chapters in, 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 in giving to you some things that I feel are important to prepare us for the second coming. And here's why. Because I believe that when you lay Jesus' first coming over his second coming, there are elements that took place in the first coming that are true also in his second coming. And if we are those that want to be prepared for the Lord to return, then there is great insight in what happened in the first coming to help us understand how we should be prepared for the second coming. So what are they? There's four things. And I know I've already been talking for 30 minutes. I'm not going to go that much longer. But I want to give you four things to consider and to examine yourself with. Are you ready for the Lord's return if he should come? So what are they? The first one is this. If you want to be ready for the Lord's return, number one is be ready. Be ready for the Lord's return. See, when Jesus came in, on the donkey. And, and that was what officially marked the first coming. That was the first coming when Jesus came into Jerusalem and they said, blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. And here's what I want you to understand is that when Jesus did that, he did that perfectly according to what was written prophetically in terms of how he would do that. He fulfilled it to the T, riding the donkey, like Zechariah 9.9 says that he would. The people would shout, blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord, just like Psalm 118, verse 26, said that he would. Everything that Jesus did was perfectly according to the prophecy. But catch this, this is important, is that the very people that knew the prophecies didn't recognize the fulfillment of the prophecies because they had a preconceived idea of what they thought it should all look like. And when it didn't happen exactly the way they scripted it, they rejected it and they were unprepared. Thus Jesus said, no man eat fruit from you henceforth and forever. And here's what I want to say to you tonight, church. As we stand what seems to be on the cusp of the second coming of Jesus, and that doesn't mean it could be tomorrow. It could still be years off from now. But certainly we've been waiting for 2,000 years and we're watching the world advance and things unfold quickly. Here's what I want to say to you. Is that we know, many of us do, and we will hear as we study forward, what the prophecies are concerning the second coming of Christ. But be careful that you don't think you know what you don't know. 
Because sometimes we think we understand it so perfectly, and yet God has a way of fulfilling things exactly according to his word, and at the same time in a way that we are completely unprepared for. And so we're to be flexibly ready for however the Lord will unfold his revealed plan in his time. And my word to you is be ready, but don't be dogmatic. Don't be so sure that you know exactly how everything's going to play out. It will be perfectly according to what God said, but he's more complex than the understanding of a finite human being. And so we must be ready, but we must understand that they missed it. And it's possible that we miss it as well. So be ready. That's number one. Number two is this. If you want to be prepared for the coming of the Lord, it's be doing. If you want to be ready for the Lord, be doing. See, right after Jesus comes in, the first thing he does is he goes into the temple. And what he sees in the temple brings rage inside of him. He goes into the church, if you would. And he sees that the state of the church is terribly contrary to what it was intended to be. And the first thing he does is he just begins to throw it all to pieces, to scatter it and throw it on the ground. The Bible says that judgment must first begin in the house of God. And I wonder if Jesus were to return today, and I know that he's here, he's with us, he sees everything, I understand all of that. But when Jesus looks at the church the church at large, not our church, but the church, does he approve of what he sees? He says that my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. But you've made it a den of thieves. And sadly, I think that many churches, a lot of the church at large, we've done that. We've taken the priority off of meeting with God, connecting with God, learning of God, worshiping God, talking to God. And we've made it more about us. We've made it a house of music and a house of good preaching and a house of decor and a house of programs. And, and none of those things are bad. All of those things are good. But when they become the emphasis and connecting with God becomes an afterthought or secondary, that displeases the Lord. And do you notice what he did? He left. He just left. He said, I'm not hanging out in Jerusalem. I'm going to go to Bethany. That's where he went. Do you know what Bethany means? Bethany means the, the house of dates, not dating your wife, but the date that you eat, fruit. Jesus said, there's no fruit here. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Jesus wants to go where there's fruit. Then he did three things. He told parables and gave teaching concerning about doing. Who did the will of the father? The first son or the second? The one who did what was asked of him. He was doing. In the parable of the vineyard, it says he took the vineyard from those that were unfaithful and he gave it to those that would bring forth the fruit of it. He's interested in fruit. Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, he said, everything you do, you do to be seen of men. You're not doing the will of God. You're doing the will of you. And every religious thing you do, you do it because of what people are going to think of you. That's not doing the will of God. That's looking busy, but you're doing nothing. <laughs> and Jesus wants us to be doing the work that he's called us to do in the days that we live in. Now, I want to be candid and, and vulnerable and open with you a little bit for just a moment on, on, on this point. I, I was 
kind of weaned on Bible prophecy. That's how God got a hold of my heart at the very beginning. When I began to read the scriptures and see what he said would happen unfolding right in front of me on the news and right in front of my eyes, I got real interested in what the Bible had to say about the second coming of Jesus. And I wanted to understand it. So I studied it. I really went in deep and and wanted to understand Revelation and understand Matthew 24 and understand the Old Testament prophecies and see how it all fit together. And God graced me with good teachers and good resources, and he helped me to understand and to piece it all together at least the best that I could. And it was good for me. It got me into the word. It taught me to study. It made me fear God, and it was good. But something else happened too. And that is that I got a little over-consumed with the fact that Jesus could come back at any minute. And that, in and of itself, distracted me from the greater call of being busy about his work. It created in me a little bit of what I would call senioritis. You know how, like, your senior year, you don't really do much work because you know you're almost done? I was so certain that we were so close to the second coming of Christ that I just kind of, well, really, I kind of became like, like this guy. Watch this. One lap of racing to go, and Tuplik is sprinting flat out now to try and keep these Belgians at bay. Oh, no. He thinks he's won. No, no, no. No, it's one lap to go. It's one lap of racing to go. No, he hasn't heard it. There's one lap of racing to go. And he thinks he's won the world title. Yeah, I I don't know if you can relate to that. But that's what happens to me if I get too focused on the second coming of Christ. I begin to think that I'm done and I stop doing. One of the hardest things for a Christian to do is to live like Jesus could come back today and live like Jesus might not come back for a hundred years. And what I've found for me is that I keep his coming in front of me, but I keep it a little bit on the side because I want to be doing the things that he's called me to do. If I get too caught up in in, in his return being today, the biggest thing that that does to me is it makes me neglect the next generation. We as the church have the responsibility to raise up and prepare the next generation to hand the baton of truth in the light of the kingdom to them should the Lord tarry. And we must be busy about his work even though we're expecting and waiting. And so here's how I do that. How do I keep that balance for me personally? I check myself and say, if Jesus came back tomorrow and I knew he was coming back tomorrow, would I change anything in my life? And if the answer to that question is yes, then I need to make those adjustments. But I want to live in such a way that he could come back tomorrow or he could come back in 20 years, but I'm going to be doing and living the way that I should be either way. He's going to find me in that uh, light that I'm supposed to. Well, you say, well, what is it that we're supposed to be doing? (laughs) I, I understand that we're supposed to do. What are we supposed to do? That's number three. And here's what it is. Not only are to be ready and be doing, but we're to be reaching. We're to be reaching. The parable that Jesus told of the wedding feast, the Lord commanded his servants, that's us, and he said, go to the highways and the byways and bid whoever will to come so that my house might be full. 
He wants us to be inviting people to his table, into his house. And it is my job to invite whoever is willing to come. Now listen to this because this is a critical, critical point. It's his job to worry about what they're wearing when they get there. See, it isn't the servant's job to say, put on a wedding garment. It's the servant's job to say, come into the kingdom. It's the Lord's job to deal with the clothing, what's going on with the the appearance, and he'll sift all of that out a little bit later on. Now, here's why I bring that up. It's because Christians are notorious in our day right now for criticizing and looking down upon what we would call the attractional church. That's the nice way of saying seeker-sensitive churches. You know, that they, they're, they're accused of watering down the message, of making it, you know, too easy for people to come in, you know, and that kind of a thing. I would argue this, is that attractional is missional. Attractional is the job, the thing, because Jesus is attractive. And, and thus, we're to reveal him in such a way as to say, hey, this is our king, this is our God, this is his character, this is his grace, this is his glory, this is his goodness, this is his person, he's real, he's living, he has a sense of humor, and that we're to give that out and we're to make Jesus accessible to all. And we're not to cut people off because of the things that we think they're doing or the way they're living that we don't approve of. That's not our job. We give the word, we disciple, the Lord changes people's clothing. And here's what I've seen in my 20 years as a Christian, because it took me way too long to figure this out, is that I have seen people come into church wearing rags, and sometimes they'll even flaunt their rags. I'm a sinner, what are you going to do about it? When they are judged, they just leave. But when they are loved, they hear the message. The Spirit of God has room and time to work in their heart. And I've seen so many change their clothes. I've seen them trade in the rags of filth and to be clothed with the robes of Jesus' righteousness. I've also seen Christians wearing robes of righteousness. They get their head in the mud for a little while and they trade in their robes of righteousness and they fall back into wearing rags. I don't want to curse those people, condemn those people, or ostracize those people. I want to continue to love those people, pray for those people, encourage those people, feed those people, and walk with those people where they are because I've seen those same people realize, what am I doing? And they put the robes back on. And so we're called to be reaching with a heart of love for the lost and for the saved. We're not to be critical and judgmental. Attractional is missional, and we're to be attractional in the way. Here's what you got to understand, is that Jesus would rather be in Bethany, which wasn't the religious place, than in Jerusalem. Because what was going on in the religious place made him sick to his stomach. He wanted to be in the real place, be loving, be reaching. And then lastly, finally, not only are we to be ready and... Oh, goodness, be doing and be loving. But listen, we're to be trusting. We're to be trusting the Lord with our lives in this time. I want to give you an equation. Here it is. Ready? Surrendered expectation plus time equals understanding and enlightenment. I'm going to say that one more time. Surrendered expectation, meaning I have an expectation but I have surrendered it. I have a desire, but I've surrendered it. 
I have a script, but I've surrendered my script to God. Plus time equals understanding and enlightenment. I want you to contrast Judas and the rest of the disciples that were there in this time. Judas and the disciples all saw the same thing, the anticlimactic entry, you know, and they all had the same expectation. Jesus is going to set up a kingdom. We're going to sit on thrones. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be glamorous. They all saw the same. They all expected the same. But Judas ran out of patience and endurance, and he forsook trust. He traded trusting in God for trusting in himself. And we know what happened to him ultimately. That's what happens anytime we forsake trusting God and begin then to trust in ourselves. The rest of the apostles and the disciples that hung with Jesus, even though they didn't understand yet what he was doing, over the course of that seven days, they observed what was happening in front of their eyes. They heard the things that Jesus was saying. They connected what they were expecting with what they were seeing. They asked questions. They prayed the right way. And in time, they came to understand what was going on that didn't make sense previously. And that's always the way it is with our God. He doesn't tell us everything that he's doing or why he's doing what he's doing or what's going on or how things are going to flesh out. He doesn't tell us any of that. He calls us to trust him. And when we trust him with patience and we observe what's going on around us and we use those observations to adjust our prayers and questions to him and then we wait for the answers that he gives and the leading that he provides, he brings clarity and understanding as we go. But we must continue to trust him because if we stop trusting him and begin trusting in ourselves, we're in for a world of hurt. It's going to start with anxiety. It's going to end in depression and eventually apostasy. But to continue to trust him is to walk in peace. It's to walk in a confidence. It's to walk in assurance and and fruit bearing and in all of these virtuous things. And ultimately, it's to come to a place of understanding It's very important that we do. I want to read Psalm chapter 2 by way of closure because we're living in in a time right now that requires more trust maybe than many of us have ever had to have in our lifetime because we don't understand what's going on around us. Why is all this happening? What does it mean for our country? What is my family going to look like on the other side of all this? What is church going to look like? Is Jesus coming? Is our freedom going to be taken away from us? Are we going to be forced to do things that we don't want to do? And what's life going to look like? And and those things are overwhelming and they're overwhelmingly complex. But I want to just read you the words of God in the light of the confusion of the days that we're living in. Listen to what the Lord says. Psalm chapter 2. He says, why do the heathen or the Gentiles rage and the people imagine an empty or a vain thing? The kings of the earth, that's the governors, the presidents, the kings, the rulers, the bankers, the authorities, the people that make decisions and have power that we don't even understand. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. They conspire against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. We don't need to obey God's authority, God's law, God's ways, God's rules. We don't have to honor God's people or God's church. Listen to God's response. Verse 4. 
He says, he that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. That means confusion. That the people who think they've clearly mapped it all out and that they know what they're doing and they're controlling the world and calling the shots, God is laughing in his seat. And he's saying, I'm going to have them in confusion. They're not going to know what happened. Then shall he speak to them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king, King Jesus, upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree, says God. The Lord has said unto me, you are my son. This day have I begotten you. This is Jesus talking. Ask of me and I will give you the heathen or the Gentiles for your inheritance. They think they're in charge. I'm telling you, I'm in charge. And I've set you even higher than them. And ask for the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. For you will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The Lord is ultimately the one that's in control. That's God's response. Now listen to what he tells us. Here's the counsel. And here's our closing. Verse 10. He says, be wise now, therefore. O ye kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. That is as much you and me. We're kings and priests unto our God. We have judgment that God gives to us. Listen to what he says. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Be aware, be vigilant, be understanding, be serving in the joy of the Lord. And watch this. Kiss the sun. Now, I've read that before and think, what does that mean, kiss the sun? What do you have to do in order to kiss someone? Well, first you have to take your, your mask off. Maybe be discretionate about that. But after that, you have to get real close. That's the idea. Get close to Jesus. Get as close as you can to Jesus. Lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. In other words, it's going to be imperative for the believer to be close to Jesus in the days of what's ahead and what's to come. Now watch this. Here's the last word. He says, blessed or happy are all they that put their trust in him. Keep trusting. Don't look at government. Don't look at policy. Don't look for leadership on the human level. Put your trust in the Lord. Don't get consumed. Don't watch three hours of conspiracy theories and then ask for inner peace. <laughs> Just go to God and trust in him. He will lead his people through, even if he has to open up the Red Sea to do it. It's what he does. Listen, as we close, if you're a Judas tonight, renew your trust in God. Don't, don't back away. Don't pull back and say, well, this isn't, this isn't, he isn't, and whatnot. No, no, no. Time plus trust equals understanding and enlightenment. Okay? Keep close to him. If you've drifted at all, or if there's space between you and Jesus, kiss the sun. Get close to him tonight. Be in his presence. Be near him. And be expectant. Next week, we'll begin our study in chapter 24 as we go through and we look at the things that Jesus says would be the signs of his coming and of the end of the age as we look for him to return. And listen, if you're ready for the Lord to come back, then I know that right now, in the middle of all this chaos, 
your heart is probably broken for what you're seeing happen and for the people that are hurting and for the destruction that the disease is causing and that the fallout is. But I also know this. I know that underneath that, there's a joy and there's a hope and there's an expectation and there's a great peace because you know who's in control. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. And if you don't know Jesus personally and you're listening to my voice tonight, this is a real good time to listen to the voice of the servant saying, would you come to the wedding? God is inviting you to be in his kingdom, to be adopted as his son, and to inherit the glory that he purchased on your behalf. The forgiveness of your sins, it's a great, great thing. Jesus is so good. If you don't know him personally, I encourage you, give your life to him tonight. Let's pray as we close out our time together. Father, we thank you so much for just the, the wisdom that you give, the, the completion of your, your, um, your, your, just your plan, how, how complete and how competent you are to bring it all to bear. And we thank you for that, Lord, tonight. And we thank you, Lord, that we're tucked in the palm of your hand, that we're kept as the apple of your eye. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to hear you. Give us sensitivity to hear your voice in these days. Help us to trust you fully and completely, Lord. And if there's any hardness in our hearts at all, Lord, we want to lay that down before you right now and ask you to please forgive it, soften it, Lord, cleanse it, wash it away. Lord, where there maybe is iniquity that has crept back into our hearts or, or, or things, Lord, that are displeasing to you, we pray that you'd bring conviction and gentle uh, help, Lord, that we would just correct course and walk with you rightly in the days that we live in. And help us, Lord, to be reaching. Open our eyes to the lost people around us. Give us compassion for our neighbors and friends. Make us to be light and joy as we're out and about in whatever capacity we are. We thank you so much, Lord, for, for, for your hope and for your strength and for your guidance and for your truth. So be with your church tonight, Lord. Hear our prayer. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for our study tonight. If you, wanna, if you need prayer for anything, drop us an email. Leave it in the comment section. If you received Christ tonight and say, I, just wanna, I want Jesus in my heart, put a hand in that comment and just say, I, I receive him, I believe. But God be with you, God bless you, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.